Welcome to Health Talk by Flowly. We begin every episode with a brief exercise to shift your nervous system closer to flow state. We do this so your nervous system can settle and you'll feel relaxed and ready to experience the interviews in each episode. Julian, who is the voice of our Flowly experiences, will take a few seconds to lead this exercise. Take a moment to adjust yourself into a comfortable position. Take a slow breath in through your nose, hold it for a few seconds, and slowly exhale through your nose as well. In your next breath, breathe in for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. And now exhale for a count of five. One, two, three, four, five. Continue to take slow breaths in through your nose and out through your nose as well, counting in five and counting out five. We have you breathe in this pattern because it equals six breaths per minute, which is the average breathing rate at which people can best control their nervous system. In Flowly, we do individualized calibration to find the exact breathing rate healthiest for you because it varies from person to person. For today, we'll end this exercise with one more five count in, one, two, three, four, five, and a five count out, one, two, three, four, five. Let's begin today's health talk. Hey y'all, my name is Celine and I'm the founder of Flowly and your host for today's Health Talk by Flowly. As you might know, Flowly is a mobile platform for chronic pain and anxiety management. And essentially, we teach users to control their heart rate and their breathing to better manage their nervous system. We like to invite everyone from chronic pain patients, chronic pain advocates, uh, professionals and practitioners in the industry to really share their different perspective and experiences on a very unique and challenging journey often. But I'm really excited to speak with Kelly Mendenhall today because not only is she a Spoonie herself, but she has years of experience in patient advocacy and writing in this space. Kelly is a senior community leader for Spy Nation, one of the leading patient advocacy organizations for back pain. She's an author, blogger, journalist, and all about raising awareness of medical gaslighting, which often leads women permanently disabled or worse. She published her debut memoir last year called Skin in the Game, The Stories My Tattoos Tell. And she's now working on her second book, The Medical Gaslighting Project. My team and I have actually worked with Kelly in partnering with Spine Nation, so I'm particularly warm to welcome a friend and Flowly user. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on today. So I wanted to start at the beginning of your journey because I know you, you know, manage multiple different illnesses and conditions and you've been through it. Um, so yeah. what was your journey to diagnosis? What were some of the challenges you faced along the way in that? Well, for starters, I just would like to say I didn't really think of myself as a Spoonie when I lived with PTSD and major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. I had never really put myself in that category. So it wasn't until my chronic pain and spine rehab journey started that I started thinking of myself as a Spoonie. 
I think it's different for everyone and everyone's journey is different when it comes to how we self-identify just like with so many other aspects of life. My journey to diagnosis took quite a bit of time. So I was a person who experienced kind of chronic aches and pains and occasional bouts of sciatica for several years. I'm talking like throughout my 20s and 30s. And then all of a sudden, I went from being a person with aches and pains who had a lot of ibuprofen on hand at all times to being a person who couldn't walk and had no range of motion in my legs. I could only shuffle my feet a couple of inches at a time. The pain was so bad that I was like sneaking into empty offices at work and crying in pain. And then I'd like pull myself together and go back out and try and face it. That happened really quickly. It was that part of the progression was very fast. And it took until June of 2019 before we had a full understanding and picture of what was going on. And that's just with my spine. And I have a whole nother set of issues that I'm dealing with, with my female, my lady bits, as I like to call it, (laughs) my baby box. Um, And so that's like been separate in addition to the spine. But What it took was firing a lot of doctors, making a lot of doctors angry and insisting on new Mm. doctors and referrals. And I finally got to the right neurologist who was like, what on earth is happening? They've only ever looked at your low back. Have you ever asked to have a full spinal MRI? And I said, yes. I asked three different doctors on three different occasions for full spinal MRIs, knowing that I have trauma history as far as like physical injuries and stuff. And they all denied me that. They all said, no, you don't need it. You're fine. You shouldn't be having this pain, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so this neurologist was like, no, you have very clear neurological symptoms. You have foot drop, you have hyper reflexes in your arms and your legs and your fingers and even your jaw. Like there, you, I couldn't pass a sobriety test, even though I was sober, I was just in his office. And that's one of the things that they sometimes do to check your neurological, you know, functioning. And I couldn't, I couldn't pass a sobriety test. And so he sent me for those full spinal MRIs. And that's when we found out the full depth of what was happening in my spine. And what was happening is that I have degenerative disc disease and mine is considered moderate um, and probably has progressed pretty quickly, even though I'm only in my 30s still. But I had four bulging discs in a row in my lumbar spine, but what they were missing, the biggest piece of the puzzle they were missing by only looking at my lumbar spine was that I had a very rare type of rupture in my spine called a centralized rupture. So normally when a disc in your spine ruptures, it pushes out to the left or the right side and they can see it when they do scans and things. But mine was a centralized rupture. So it pushed straight back onto my spinal cord. That in and of itself is rare, but then it was also at the junction where your thoracic and lumbar spine meet right under my bottom rib, which is an extremely rare place to have a rupture. So I was a unicorn in a lot of ways. I see the unicorn (laughs) on your shirt right now. (laughs) Yeah, one of my best friends got me this shirt. Um, But I wanted to kind of 
dive into that a little bit because, yeah, you know, you're talking about, you know, you're a unicorn. These are very rare conditions. You talk to like so many doctors, you've had to fire doctors. Like this is, I think in and of itself, this could be a, for some people, a traumatic experience mm-hmm. um, in and of itself when you're talking about something that's health and it's so vulnerable to each person. And yet you're getting questioned and people are not taking you seriously. And I can, I think this might lead into what you're writing about now, which is, you know, kind of sharing from your perspective, what is medical gaslighting um, and what inspired you to be writing and sharing awareness about this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is that that's a really big piece of my life now is raising awareness of medical gaslighting. And so medical gaslighting, if we think of gaslighting in a romantic relationship or an interpersonal relationship, we generally, uh, in a very general way, we think of it as like someone trying to make you feel crazy or make you feel like you're not seeing reality when really they're like distorting reality. And so medical gaslighting, which happens to women statistically more than men, but does happen to men too, is when your doctor is doing that. So your doctor is saying things to you like, well, your scans don't show any reason for you to be experiencing that. So you shouldn't be experiencing that. Or are you sure that you just don't feel like working? (laughs) Or I would get accused of drug seeking a lot and wanting Mm -hmm. narcotic and opioid. But I think you and I have discussed, I, I early on made a decision that opioids were and narcotics were not a good option for me, for one, because it was nerve pain. And for two, because I have an addiction history in my family very like up to my sister. I mean, it's really close. I would get accused by some of them for drug seeking. And then other ones would get mad at me when I refused prescriptions for those kinds Mm, of meds. And they would, and they would say, well, then it must not be that bad. And it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't win. Right. Yeah. Those types of things are what I'm talking about when I talk about medical gaslighting. And, and it really does happen to women way more than we probably realize. And I found that out on accident. So my master's degree is in political science and I've always been a researcher by nature. And so I was working on an article that I was writing for Blasting News about women and chronic pain and my experience. And my mom actually pointed out to me that the comedian Jim Gaffigan's wife almost died because she had a brain tumor. And like me, doctors were saying, no, everything's fine. You're fine. There's nothing wrong. You're fine. And it turned out she had a brain tumor and it nearly killed her. And so I read that article and then I was like, well, I wonder if this is happening more often. And that's where the research came in. And I was like, blown away by some of the clinical and legal studies that have been done on this. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. And like what I tell you, every single user we talk to has experienced this. It is like an understatement and it's, it's shocking. And it's like, I think the work you're doing is so important in raising awareness about this to let people know, like, First of all, you you have the authority to be your own health advocate and to know that these doctors, you know, some might be great, but there are many that aren't going to be there for you and listen to you. Um, and so I think the first step is actually recognizing that you're not alone in this and that it's not just in your head. 
And that's where a community like what what we have on Spine Nation or in Flowly, that's where those things come in handy because you know, when I was immobilized, my online community became my yeah. lifeline to the world. And um I was scared though and I was and I felt alienated and and alone because I didn't know anyone else personally going through anything like I was going through. Well, I found people through the online community and um, that helped me a lot building building the online uh, kind of safety net and people who mm-hmm. I could talk to and commiserate with. And that's really when I dove more into the Spoonie culture because I was like, these, these guys, like they know exactly what I'm dealing with. And what <laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. Through. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas everyone that I worked with outside the home had kind of, I ceased to exist when I didn't walk into the office anymore. I had people who were online who I only knew online who were checking on me every day. And yeah, so that's where things like Flowly and, and Spine Nation come in, I think, and are critical to our sanity through stuff yeah. like this. I mean, I think your ability to, like right now, the ability to connect with each other, even online is so critical. But the other thing that you've done is you have your own blog and you share a lot of deeply personal experiences. Um, And I wonder for you, what is the balance in that? Like, do you feel vulnerable? Is it hard to share these experiences? And what was the decision behind starting to write about them and sharing it with the world? Originally, my my uh, decision to start sharing it and write about it and blog about it was this weird desire I had to turn a mess into a message. Mm-hmm. I guess I I guess in my former life I call myself a recovering nonprofit professional, and from working in nonprofit for so long, you know, I was used to to writing and communicating with donors and, and conveying emotion and all these different things. And I've been a writer since I was a little kid, but when I was going through this and I started to realize how alone and isolated I felt, I thought, well, if I talk about my stuff, even if only like five people read my blog, then, you know, that's, it'll help those five people. (laughs) Of course it's gone way beyond that. Yeah. I had I had a podcast and I've done all kinds of things and sometimes I feel vulnerable talking about it. I really don't feel vulnerable when it comes to my health because that's not anything I did wrong. It's not anything to feel ashamed of. It's and and it raises awareness about medical gaslighting and helps other women. Yeah. When I share about my personal life, that feels a little bit more vulnerable. Like I I went public about my abortion in my book and on my podcast and that scared the, the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, honestly, but I made it and the world didn't stop spinning. And so once and then once I published my memoir, it was like I don't have any secrets anymore. Like like at that point it was like it would be silly to stop <laughs> it's now. So far gone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, so here's my next question for you is you do a lot of things like and while you're managing all these invisible illnesses, you're running like a community, you're a community leader, you're a writer, you're blogging, all these things. What are some of the tools that you use on a daily basis to manage um, your symptoms, whether it's physically, emotionally, even socially? 
I wanted to make sure that I didn't skip over. You brought up that it would be traumatic to have the experiences I did with doctors. And it was. In fact, my my PTSD had been in remission for four, four or four and a half years until all this started. And then I was full blown right back into it as mm-hmm. though it was like square one. And so it is traumatic and it has only compounded my PTSD. And I already have what they call complex PTSD because it's not just one significant event. It is a smattering and layering of traumatic experiences and events. And this medical stuff has only added to that. Also, I'm a spinal fusion patient. I've had two spinal fusions now, and the one was really big, and I had to relearn how to walk and everything because it was the the big rupture that was crushing my spinal cord. About 20%, they estimate, of spinal fusion patients will also experience PTSD from that, from the physical trauma. So, I want I want to make sure that people understand that while I have been turning my mess into a message, I'm also very authentic and honest with people about the days when I can't even make myself get out of bed or I just need to take a mental health day. And so some of the things that I do to manage my symptoms, one is exercise. I have a rehabilitative personal trainer, which I highly recommend to any Spoonie who is trying to get healthier and doesn't know where to start. Sometimes you have to hire the experts because we can't be experts at everything. And that was definitely the case for me and my rehabilitative Mm -hmm. trainer. It helps manage the inflammation and physical pain in my body and in my left leg. It also helps manage my feelings of overwhelming anxiety or like impending doom on the bad days. And even if I'm depressed and I don't feel like going to the gym, if I can just make myself get there, I feel much better when I leave. So definitely physical exercise and diet is super important. What's your diet? I do an anti-inflammatory diet, but kind of like Mm -hmm. a dumbed down version of it. I'm allergic to gluten and corn. So that made those two Things really easy to give up. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I don't eat very much animal protein. If I do eat animal protein, it's mostly chicken or fish or turkey. I use coconut sugar for baking or in my coffee or cooking, whatever I need. Mm-hmm. I just started trying that. Yeah, because for mm-hmm. those who don't know, coconut sugar does not cause the insulin response in your body that cane sugar or artificial sweeteners do, which those, that reaction, that insulin reaction can cause inflammation in your body. So the coconut sugar, I'm not going to drink black coffee. (laughs) I refuse. That's all I have left is good coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so coconut sugar is really helpful. So Um, A basic anti-inflammatory diet, eating lots of like, I'll make a smoothie every morning that's a vegan smoothie with like pea protein and frozen blueberries. It's, It's all vegan except for I add collagen peptides, which is like powder. And the reason why I do that is because I had so much bone removed from my back and my spine. And I'm trying to regrow new bone cells and I'm trying to keep things from getting worse too much faster. So that's why I use the collagen peptides. Another thing that I use to manage anxiety is the Flowly app, honestly. And you and I have talked about that extensively. 
Um, for those who don't know, I did a whole series of videos where I reviewed different modules and talked about it. And that helps because it can be way too easy to, to like when my flight or fight kicks in to like dissociate and shut down. And then I forget coping mechanisms. Mm. The Flowy app is right at my fingertips. It's on my phone right in front of me. So it's harder to forget, which is part of why I like it. I don't even have, like I have the virtual reality goggles so I can use them if I want. But um, if I'm in bed having a panic attack, I can just pull out the app. Creating things is huge for me. I'm a very creative person. I begged for a typewriter when I was eight years old for my birthday and my mom got it for me. So writing and creating, I hand sew these meticulous sequin and beaded applique Christmas stockings like oh my gosh like our grandmothers and great-grandmothers yeah, used to make. I make all those for like all my nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews and my best friends kids and stuff and that is very meditative to me because I'm just right. it's repeated I'm just like stitching 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 you know and and it's repeated movement and I can kind of just zone out, listen to a podcast or put on a documentary or something in the background that I can listen to and, um, and chill out. And you know, when you're doing that, you're actually practicing what you learned in Flowly because the whole idea of Flowly is that you're getting into a flow state. And I always write about this and encourage people to find that hobby or that activity where you naturally get into flow state and you're practicing that same, you're sort of at that intersection of high performance, but being super relaxed and like the act of doing it is rewarding in of itself. And which is is. what biofeedback does. It teaches you to do. So it's kind of like you work at that muscle and fully. And then when you have that activity, when you actually get to apply it. And I love that, that you're sharing that. Yeah. And, and I really highly recommend handcrafting. I know a lot of spoonies who use hand stitching, crocheting, knitting, anything like that, handcrafting. My mom does mosaic work. Um, wow. And I, I highly recommend picking up one such hobby if you can. The felt stockings are really inexpensive. They're $20 <laughs> usually for yeah. a kit. It's like $20 for a kit and that comes with everything you need to complete the project. So it's like affordable for Spoonies too. But yeah. Um, and then the thing, it's an extra thing. It's more than three. But I really want to say this because I think we need to normalize it more. I take my freaking meds. Like mm-hmm. I I am in trauma therapy. I have a therapist I, even throughout quarantine. I have phone therapy with her once a week. Um and and I take medication for my depression and anxiety and some of some of my medications double as like I have one medication nortriptyline which is for chronic pain patients and depression because it also helps relieve some of the pain too. So it's like working double duty. I know a lot of people feel bad or feel like they're using a crutch or feel like they're not trying hard enough or something if they have to take meds, but like that's all lies we tell ourselves. That's like that's arbitrary. It's whatever works for you, of course. Yeah. It's so individual. And I mean, even when we do like, you know, we do clinical trials of Flowly and 
one of the metrics we do look at is the reduction of medication, but we never, um, we always tell them it's your choice. It's voluntary. And, you know, reduction is great in of itself, but no one's asking you to go to zero because it depends on your condition. Like it depends on what each person needs. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I do think that needs to be normalized. Yeah. I mean, you don't, I, there's no magic pill for anything. So it's not like I take all these meds and I magically feel better. And I, I still have panic days. I still have high anxiety days. I still have days where I'm especially fatigued or sad from my depression, but at this point I'm a veteran at it. Like I've been living with depression and anxiety literally my whole life and in and out of therapy since my dad passed away when I was four. So like I can recognize pretty well when I start to slip into one of those kinds of episodes and it's not a magic pill. It's not, it's not going to make everything better. I do think exercising and watching what I eat because inflammatory foods also cause inflammation in the brain. And there have been Mm -hmm. studies that link that with depression and anxiety. So diet, exercise, therapy, and meds. But I always say, do whatever the F you have to do to survive. Like word, word. that's the number one rule of spoonie Mm -hmm. life. Do whatever you got to do to survive. Make your care choices, however you need to make them. And don't allow other people to, uh, belittle or shame you because of your care choices I think that's an amazing note to end on um I we have to have you back sometime Kelly because you're just like a wealth of experience in this space <laughs> but I'm so glad and I'm, yeah I'm so glad we even got into the nitty-gritty of it because I think we hear so many tips and you can read so many like articles online and people's blogs but what I really like to hear like literally what coffee do people drink like what's the activity yeah. they like to do because even though everybody's different, you might get ideas from that about what might work for you. And you can try it out, trial and error, I think, for pain management. Absolutely. And um, just so for the sake of giving myself a little bit of a shameless plug, if you are listening to this and you are a Spoonie who's also a creative and maybe working in a traditional environment doesn't work for you anymore, and you want to create a lifestyle and career that honors your body and your mind's unique needs and limitations, like I'm 100% here for it. I do free coaching calls to like give people an introduction to me, but then I also have a new coaching program that's like a group coaching program and it's super affordable. It's two weeks for $47 so that Spoonies can afford it because this is ex- that's who I'm doing this for. And I'm just helping other people explore things about themselves that can help turn their mess into a message. That's amazing. Um, I'll be sure to link it below. You can find Kelly's info in the caption um, and just look up Spy Nation, Kelly Mendenhall. Um, you'll <laughs> all find the all things. the info, all the things. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Kelly. It was amazing having you. Thank you. Have a great day.